preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you uh, take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's a joy to open up God's Word uh, with you uh, again. And uh, this afternoon we find ourselves in 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 13 through 17. And uh, this is an important text for several reasons. Uh, First of all, this is an important text because it contains one of the most central passages in all of the Scripture about our responsibility to defend the Christian faith. In uh, verse 15, we find the biblical justification for Christian apologetics or the defense of the faith. I remember uh, one of the questions that I received during my ordination a number of years back uh, was, is there a passage that provides us with a biblical framework for apologetics? And the answer they were looking for was 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, where it says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And uh, that word for defense that's found in verse 15 is the the Greek word apologia. And uh, that doesn't mean that we apologize for the faith. You know, I'm sorry that I'm a believer. That's not what we do in apologetics. We're not apologizing for anything. Uh, We don't apologize for what we believe, but we do give an apologetic Uh, which is a defense, an explanation, or a vindication of any charges against the truth. That's what the the word apologia means. It's even the primary meaning of our English word apology. Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary gives this as a primary meaning for the word apology, uh, the defense of a person or vindication of an institution from accusation or aspersion, or an attack, or uh, attack on the reputation of integrity, or, or integrity of something. So this is an important text for the sake of the defense of the faith. Why do we defend what we believe? We have the justification for it right here in First Peter chapter three. It's also an important text. What we're going to read today and study today, uh, because of its exhortation to the believer to endure suffering for the sake of righteousness. Now, verse fourteen uh, speaks about suffering for the sake of righteousness. And verse 17 speaks about suffering for doing what is right. And that's a common theme throughout the entire book of 1 Peter, that we suffer for doing what's right. In uh, 1 Peter 2.19, suffering unjustly. Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 20, when you do what is right and suffer for it. Chapter 4, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Chapter 4, verse 19, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God. We, we suffer even for doing the right thing. And that's a, a powerful reminder that as believers, we don't have the option to escape suffering by doing what is wrong, no, no matter what the cost is. We, we can't bow the knee to the golden statue when we hear the music play. 
That's all the, the Hebrew boys had to do. Remember that back in Daniel chapter 3? In order to escape suffering, all they had to do was cave in. Give in to the pressure. Let me just go ahead and, uh, and show a sign of, of reverence for this statue and they'll leave me alone. But they said, we don't even have to think about how we're going to answer you, Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. No can do, right? There, there, there's no way. I, I cannot cave into the pressure to escape suffering. I, I, I do what's right, even if it costs me. Even if it costs me my life, I do what's right. And that's an important lesson that we learn in this passage as well. But this is also an important text because in it we learn about the blessings of righteousness. That there are blessings of righteousness, not only in the life to come, but even in this life we experience the blessings of righteousness. And we, we've already seen some of these blessings of righteousness right here in the, the book of First Peter. Uh, righteousness uh, living a righteous life, a righteous uh, uh, people experience joy even in the face of suffering. You can experience joy even as you suffer. In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. No matter what the circumstance might be, you, you can't see everything. Everything doesn't seem like it might pan out, but I can look to him I can look to him with the eyes of faith and say, Lord, I, I believe in you, I trust in you, and experience a joy inexpressible and full of glory. You don't have to wait until the battle is over. You can shout now. Like, like there is a joy that we have in our God, a joy that experience doesn't answer for us, but our heavenly promise does. We have a, a love for the one who loved us and gave his life for us. We have a love for the unseen Christ, right? That's, that's what we enjoy as, as believers. And if you're here and you're, you're not a believer, uh, you can come to know this Christ too, the one who gave his life as a substitute for those who would believe and trust in him. And we pray that you would. Also, the righteous experience right now, the favor of God, even in the face of suffering. Over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. What's, what's the, the big deal about that? I did what was wrong and I got what was coming to me. You know, there, there's no, no kind of a, a, a favor in that. You know, there's no credit in that. But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. The, the glory of God and his favor rests upon those who do what is right, even in the face of suffering. There's a satisfaction in the smile of, of God. If you remember, just after the, the church was born, the Jewish leaders attempted to silence the proclamation of the gospel uh, that was going forth by the apostles. By imprison, imprisonment and lashings, the, the apostles were whipped. According to the Encyclopedia Judaica, the, the floggings, the whippings would have been administered with a whip made out of calfskin on the bare upper body of the offender, one-third on the front side of the body, bare-chested, and two-thirds on the back of the body while the offender bowed down belief, uh, beneath the administered. That's, that's how the whippings occurred. 
And according to Deuteronomy 25 and verse 3, a man who deserved to be beaten could receive as many as 40 stripes. But the Jewish tradition only gave 39 just in case they miscounted. You know, they didn't want to go over the 40, so they, they stopped at 39. Which explains what Paul said over in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 24, where he said, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. He, he received the maximum penalty that they could dish out. He said it was 40 minus one. And this is likely what the apostles received shortly after the day of, of Pentecost. Whippings on the chest, bare chest, whippings on the bare back. But rather than resenting their suffering, Acts chapter 5 and verse 41 says, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. There is a, a joy that we can experience even now in the face of, of suffering, knowing that there is the smile of God upon our suffering, upon our obedience. There was a joy and excitement that they were considered worthy to even suffer for the name of Christ. Another experience that we have in this life because of righteousness, living a righteous life, what, what do we receive even now? Blessings even now? Answer to prayer. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, chapter 3 and verse 12 speak about God hearing the prayers of the righteous. The, the husbands are, who dwell with their wives according to, to knowledge, their prayers are not hindered. They're to dwell with their wives according to knowledge so that their prayers will not be hindered. Having the ear of God. First Peter 3 verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who, who do evil. And also, according to this passage, it's the blessings that we receive in this life is uh, also to love life and to see good days. That's what we looked at last time we were uh, together in uh, chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11. It says, for the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil, do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So there's a, a loving of life. There, there's an experience of joy even in this life for the ones who keep their tongues from evil and their lips from deceit, who turn away from evil. That's the blessings that we can enjoy even now. And that's what verse 13 picks up on and kind of continues the same idea. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And the expected answer would have been, No one. <laughs> who, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for, for what is good, the expected answer would have been nobody. It's, it's not natural for people to harm those who are doing good to them, to those who are seeking peace, to those who are seeking to bless them with their words. Of course, it's possible. It's possible that we still suffer, but we're, we're not surprised at the fiery ordeal when it does happen, when we do suffer, even when we do what's right. Verses Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 lets us know that. Don't be surprised when you experience a fiery ordeal. There will be people who will seek your harm, even if you seek their good. But that's not what we should constantly expect. Like, it, it's normal and natural to expect that if I do good, that I'll receive good. That if I'm seeking to live in peace, that, that I'll be able to, to live at peace with other people. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, if possible, and sometimes it is possible, right? So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's how Christians are supposed to live. We're to be peacemakers, not troublemakers, right? It's not all bad for the believer. We can love life. We can see good days. I remember uh, when I was graduating seminary, there was a, another 
graduate who was uh, giving his uh, testimony before a group of people, and uh, he was asked, you know, what are, what are you looking forward to, you know, after you, you graduate from, from seminary? And uh, this young seminarian said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the pain, the hardship, you know, there's going to be attacks and persecution, you know, I know that's what I have to look forward to. And this one wise pastor said, but don't, don't forget there's also joys in the ministry as well. I mean, it's not always uh, pain and, and hardship and, uh, you know, sleepless nights and, you know, cold and exposure, right? There, there's also joys of ministry. You can experience the love of life and seeing good days as well, right? And that's what First Peter reminds us of. It's not all bad for the believer. There's also good that we can experience in life. And we should pursue a life of peace, right? For the believer, that's what we're trying to to live for. We're living for Christ, living underneath Christ. But in part of living for Christ, we also experience some of the benefits, even now, even in this life. My question for you is, are you living the good life? Are you living the good life? First Peter chapter 3, look at verse 12, starting at verse, verse 12. Actually, I'll start at verse 13. First Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Listen to what it says. It says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you uh, this afternoon, as we always do. Every time we approach this, this word, Father, we recognize that this is a supernatural book. This book comes from you. Now, this is not just the words of men. This is the very word of God. And Father, I pray that you would open it up to us, help us to understand what's contained in your word, and uh, help our lives to be changed and transformed because of what we read. Help us not just to to walk away like a a man who beholds his face in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. Help help us to make the the proper adjustments that we need to make in our life as a result of hearing your truth. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. So what does it mean to live the the good life? When we think about somebody living the the good life, what are are we thinking about? There's actually a a dictionary definition for living the good life. Uh, Merriam-Webster's online dictionary says, says this. It says to live the, the good life is to live the life of a wealthy person. That's, the, that's a dictionary definition for living the good life. It's the kind of life uh, described in Psalm 73 that Asaph was envious of. You know, the men who are prosperous and pain-free, well-fed, increased in wealth, always at ease. I mean, that's the, the good life that many dream about. It's the kind of life that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 12 that the rich man whose land was very productive and he said to himself in chapter 12 and 19, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Or today the the good life would be described by the man who has acres of land, a mansion for a house, a luxury car for every space of his 10 car garage and the freedom to get whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. But that's not the kind of, of freedom that we have described for us in 1 Peter chapter 3. That's not the kind of good life that the scripture points us towards. If you remember the, the kind of uh, freedom that uh, 
uh, the man enjoyed in Psalm 73 and that the, the rich man enjoyed in, in Luke chapter 12 didn't end well, right? It didn't end well for them. That's not the kind of freedom that we're trying to pursue. The kind of freedom that we're trying to pursue is rather a freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering. In chapter uh, 3, verses 13 to 14, speaks about that. It asks the question, who was there to harm you? We looked at that earlier. There's a freedom from unwanted intimidation and distress in uh, verses 14 to 15. In the middle of uh, verse 14, we read, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. There's a freedom from unwanted intimidation and distress. And also the good life contains a freedom from ungodly scandal and shame, which is what we find in verse 16, because we're instructed to keep a good conscience, a clean conscience before God. That's what living the good life is in this passage, a freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering, a freedom from intimidation and distress and a freedom from shame. So let's take a look at our first point in this passage, a freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering. Look again at verse 13. It says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. As believers, we can experience a freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering. And I, I chose that word unnecessary purposefully. Because there are times when suffering is necessary, right? There are actually times when it would be sinful to try to avoid suffering. Like when we're called on to make a a stand for the faith and we sinfully try to avoid that. That's sinfully trying to avoid suffering. Like the time when Peter denied any association with Jesus Christ. And curses fell from his lips. He was trying to avoid suffering, but he was doing it sinfully. And after the cock crowed, you know, he finally came to his senses that he had denied his Lord. A sinful attempt to avoid suffering. There's another example that comes from church history during the English Reformation in the 16th century. There was a, a reformer by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer. And uh, J.C. Rowell writes this. He says, uh, Cranmer maintained an unblemished reputation throughout the reigns of Henry VII and Edward VI in England. And not a single man can be named who passed through so much dirt and yet came out of it so thoroughly undefiled. But after Queen Mary ascended the throne in 1553 in England and declared war against the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, Cranmer caved in fear and signed a recantation renouncing his faith. He was fearful of being burned at the stake, which was the punishment for heresy. But they determined to burn him anyway. Even after he signed this recantation, you know, saying, I deny all that I taught before, I deny all that, they still decided to burn him at the stake. And before he was burned, they invited him to declare his new faith, you know, returning to the old, old faith of the Roman Catholic Church. But to everyone's surprise, he recanted his recantation. (laughs) He rejected the authority of the Pope and rejected the Catholic Mass as false. And when he came to the stake to be burned, He says, for as much as my hand has offended in writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be the first to be punished. For when I come to the fire, it will be the first to be burned. And while the the flames curled around him, he steadily held out his right hand in the fire, saying, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand, wrote contrary to his convictions, held out his hand in the fire, while his other hand was stretched out to heaven for the Lord Jesus Christ to receive his spirit. There's suffering that can't be avoided. 
We can't avoid suffering when it's time to stand for the faith. We can't, we can't shrink back. That's necessary suffering. But there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that we can't avoid, right? And that's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.13. He says, who is to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? You can avoid a lot of suffering by being zealous for what is good. And the the question is rhetorical. Who is there to harm you? The the answer is contained in the question itself. Like, like nobody harms people like that. Not generally. There's obviously expectations, but we don't expect people to harm people who are doing good. You know, like when we're out during evangelism week and passing out free ice cold water in the middle of summer, you know, there's not a lot of people who uh, don't take the water and the track, right? Because they see us out there, we're, we're, we're doing good, we're, we're being kind. They, they generally appreciate what we're doing out there. And that's part of the freedom of the good life. If I'm seeking to be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble, I'm not returning evil for in, evil, insult for insult. In general, people will return a blessing to you. They, they don't treat those with harshness and harm those who are treating them well. If I keep my tongue from evil, my lips from deceit, I'm turning away from evil, I'm seeking peace, I can generally anticipate that I'll be left alone. And that's the way that Scripture tells us that we're to pursue. What we're to pursue is is peace. Live at peace with all men. We're not to seek to be troublesome meddlers, always antagonistic. You know, I've always got something to say even if I'm not invited. You know, I shouldn't be surprised if, if that's the kind of person I am that I get what's coming to me. I shouldn't be sticking my nose into business that doesn't belong to me. Proverbs 20 and verse 3 says, Keep away from strife. Keeping away from strife is an honor for any man, but any fool will quarrel. You know, uh, it's, it's the wise who, who try to keep away from strife, but any fool can get into an argument. And so much of what we have today is quarreling for the sake of quarreling. I don't always need to have something to say. You know, allow people to follow their, their conscience as long as they're not in sin, leave them alone, right? 1 Peter 4, 15 says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evil doer, or a troublesome meddler. That, that phrase, troublesome meddler, is one word in the Greek. It's literally somebody who oversees others' affairs. You know, I think the technical definition is, uh, you know, mind your business. <laughs> you know, those who stick their nose into other people's affairs, if, they, if they, they get trouble back to them, it's like, what did you expect? What did you expect? That's not how we are to suffer as Christians. That's unnecessary suffering. When we suffer for the mess we've started, that's not suffering for righteousness' sake. First Peter 4.16 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. If I'm to suffer for anything, let it be because I was standing for the truth of the gospel and for doing what is right, not for jumping into every controversy. We're not the troublemakers, like I said, we're the, we're the peacemakers. We're zealots for good. Actually, back in First uh, Peter 3, when it says, uh, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It's translated there as, a, as an adjective describing the, the person who does what is good. But in the original Greek, it's actually a noun. It's, it's the word zealots. Literally, we are to be zealots for good. Uh, the zealots were a, a, a militant, revolutionary, anti-Roman political party. And they, they were so committed to the freedom of, of Israel that they, they didn't hesitate to use violence to advance their cause. Uh, the, the movement had its roots in the, the Maccabean revolt in 167 BC. And the zealots engaged in guerrilla warfare 
including nighttime attacks, defending themselves on the Sabbath day. Uh, they came to be known as Sicarii, which was a, a Latin term for assassins, hitmen. And they, they, they carried this small curved dagger that they would stick in their cloak. And uh, anytime they found a, a Roman or a Roman sympathizer in a crowd, they, they try to sneak up behind them and, and stab them and slip back into the crowd before anybody knew where the, the dagger came from. That's, that's what the, the zealots did. They were so committed to their cause that they were willing to kill and to be killed. And Peter says, you should be just as committed to doing what's right. You should be just as committed to doing good, even if you suffer for it. Are you, are you zealots for good? Are you zealous for what's right? And the contrast here is who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But, and here's the contrast here, again, it's not expected that you'll be returned harm, but don't be surprised when it happens. And rather than believing you've been cursed by God when harm comes to you, what are you to consider yourself? You're blessed. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. We're to regard ourselves as being blessed by God. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Matthew chapter 5. When we walked through the Beatitudes many, many moons ago, I'm not sure how many years at this point, we saw that term blessed, makarios, refers to your privilege, your highly favored position. And being blessed is not about what you feel, you know, just about the, the good things externally that might happen, but it's about your privileged position before God, the honorable position that we have before God. Look back at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's an evidence that you belong to the kingdom of heaven when you're persecuted for righteousness. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. Our suffering is rewarded by God in eternity. Why, why else should we rejoice? Look at verse 12 again. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. Why? You've, you've got great company. You're in the company of the, the prophets. Then he continues on in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. What did we just learn about over in 1 Peter? Being zealous for good works. Let them see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So why should we rejoice? Because our, our good works can be used by God to shine the light of the glorious gospel on men. And we're blessed to be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Amen? You have a great privilege. You have a great privilege. If, if you're zealous for what's good, you can be free from unnecessary harm and suffering and only receive that harm and suffering which is necessary for the glory of God and for the benefit of his people. We can live in freedom, freedom from unnecessary harm and knowing that what comes to us is only by God's gracious choice. Number two, not only can we experience a freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering, number two, we can experience a freedom from unwanted intimidation and distress. Look again at chapter three back in first Peter. Look at verse 14 again. Middle of verse 14, it says, and do not fear their intimidation 
and do not be troubled. The, the good life that Peter offers to us doesn't guarantee that we'll never be tested or threatened or even persecuted. But the, the blessing is that we don't have to live in fear of any of it. That's the blessing of the good life. We don't have to fear persecution and suffering. And I don't want you to miss this point, And this is important, okay? It's not that we don't fear intimidation because those who intimidate us can't make good on their promises. That's, that's not why we don't fear. You know, it would be one thing to say like, hey, don't, don't fear any of them because they can't hurt you. You know, like, like the cicadas that were around this summer, right? You know, they were loud. They were annoying. We had a whole swarm of them outside our doors right here at the church. They actually uh, came in to, to join the service on a, on a Sunday. And I remember, uh, I think it was Knox and, and Jax that were on the cicada duty that day, pulling them off of people's backs and running them outside. You know, the cicadas were just everywhere, swarmed everywhere. But we can confidently tell people the cicadas can't hurt you, right? They can't hurt you. They, they, they may have those creepy red eyes, but they can't hurt you. Cicadas don't have jaws. They don't have stingers. The, the worst that they can do is mistake you for a tree and try to suck on you. I mean, that's, that's the worst that they do. So we can say authoritatively, do not fear the intimidation of the cicada and do not be troubled because they can't hurt you. But that's not the kind of freedom from fear that Peter is talking about. Peter's talking about a fear, a freedom, freedom from fear in the face of real danger. Peter is talking about a situation where you can be harmed. And he's still telling you, do not fear. And that's a whole other level of courage, right? Don't fear, even though this might cost your life. But don't be afraid. <laughs> that's what Peter is saying. Do not fear their intimidation. That's what he's talking about. And the threats are real. And this is the kind of word that we need today, don't we? We need a kind of word like this. Because we live in a, in a society where the threats are real. In our own nation, the protections and privileges and promises of times past are quickly eroding. I'm not sure if you're paying attention or not. And it's not an idle threat. We're, we're talking about real-time challenges that people are dealing with. All around us, pressures are mounting and increasing. <clears throat> Christianity has been dismissed as having any kind of relevance or respectability in the public square. Biblical Christianity is a joke. Christianity is openly mocked and ridiculed in ways that no other religion is. The Christians are the target. You know, public enemy number one. And it's only getting worse. The biblical views about morality, sexuality, identity are not just considered wrong, the views of the Christians, not just considered wrong, but they're considered dangerous. Because the biblical view is unable to affirm how a person may identify themselves, and that's considered harming that person. The government is right now considering legislation that could limit the kind of counsel that churches could offer because they may identify themselves in a way that the, the Bible does not identify them. The door's already been opened for government overreach into the church, regardless of what your position might be the government cannot dictate to the church how we should worship. It's not their role to tell the church how long you can worship, what you can and cannot do in worship, and who can worship. That's not the role of the government. You know, it reminds me of uh, uh, Second Chronicles where uh, Uzziah, you know, who was the, the king in, in Judah, entered into the temple and tried to offer sacrifices. And the, the priest turned to him and said, what are, 
What are you doing here? It is not for you, Uzziah, to try to offer up sacrifice. This, this jurisdiction doesn't belong to you. But that's exactly what the government's doing. They're, they're rushing into a place that doesn't belong to them and trying to dictate what happens. That's not your lane. Stay in your lane. And pastors arrested in Canada are a reminder that governments don't understand their role. There's employees who are being forced to make tough decisions because they can't in good conscience comply with their company's mandates. There are parents who are becoming increasingly uneasy about the education of their children, receiving all kinds of uh, uh, different uh, views and ideologies, participating in activities that they don't agree with. These aren't idle threats. I'm talking about real stuff, right? Real, real, Real dangers, real consequences. And I would be wrong to tell you that these are just the cicadas in life. You know, they, they may look creepy, but they can't harm you. That's, that's not the truth. It's not the truth. You may be called on to suffer for the sake of righteousness. You may be. Whether it's on your job, in your family, in your community, or in connection with your church. You go to that church? <laughs> there could be all kinds of stigmatisms because of that, right? The, the way that people would view us. But the word of God is, don't fear. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. And you may notice in your Bible, that's a a quotation. It actually comes from the book of Isaiah. Why don't you flip back to Isaiah chapter 8 real quick. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah was prophesying to a, a nation on the brink of destruction. And some might argue that we're in the, the same place today. But the handwriting was on the, on the wall during Isaiah's day. But the nation was on a spiral downwards. Over in Isaiah 1, in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Isaiah in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, uh, which places us in um, the 8th century B.C., during a time when the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were in the downward spiral. By this time, the, the nation of Israel was already fractured into two nations, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And during the 8th century, the northern kingdom of Israel would would be completely decimated by the nation of Assyria. That happened in 722 B.C. And you might not be familiar with Assyria, but you are familiar with the capital because the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And Assyria was hated. They were terrorists. They were an enemy nation. And according to Isaiah 7.18, God would use Assyria to shave Israel in the north down like a razor. Why don't you look at a real quick Isaiah chapter 7. Look at verse 18. Isaiah chapter 7. Look at verse 18. It says, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor hard from the regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Israel was about to get a shave and a haircut and be turned into a heap of ruins. That's what God is saying. And it's going to be devastating. You're going to be be shaved down, cut down. Verse 23 of uh, chapter 7, it says, And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. 
Not, nothing's going to be left there anymore. Decimated. That's for the, all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe. You will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. And during this time, there were threats of war all around. Judah was fearing that the nations that were around them, Syria was gathering themselves together for war. Israel's gathering themselves together for war. Assyria was gathering themselves together for war. And Judah feels caught in the middle of all this. All these dangers, real dangers all around. These nations are going at it. I feel like I'm caught in the middle. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, was fearful that he would be churned up in the war machine. And he's looking for protection. Where can I go to find some kind of security? I need safety. I'm in trouble. And he's looking to the foreign nations for help instead of looking to his God. Instead of looking to God, he's looking to the foreign nations to try to help him. I need some help. In verse, chapter 7 and verse 2, it says, When it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans or the, the Syrians have camped in Ephraim, it says his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Terrified. And Isaiah's word to King Ahaz during this time when he's trembling was trust in God. Trust in the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 4. God's word to him was, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted. Seems like a, a strange word to give to a nation that's on the brink of war, right? Nation on high alert. And you're saying, Take care. Be calm. Don't be faint-hearted. Trust the Lord. Everything's going to be okay. And the people of Isaiah's day said that, uh, you know, Isaiah's words are like a conspiracy. You know, telling us not to fear not to be faint-hearted? I mean, is, is he on the enemy's side? It's a conspiracy. Whose side is he on? Look down at chapter 8 and verse 11. He says, For thus the Lord spoke to me with a mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. And what Isaiah is saying is that, you know what the greatest problem in Judah is? It's not the threats coming from the nations outside. It's because of the threats coming from the inside. You don't trust God. That's your greatest problem. You don't have a fear for God. You're, you're so worried about what's going on on the outside. You don't have a fear for God. You do not regard him as holy. That's your greatest problem. Don't call this a conspiracy. I'm trying to point you to God. You're your greatest problem. You're the greatest problem. The threats outside are real, but the greatest threat is what's on the inside. Because my greatest concern should be, am I pleasing God? That should be my greatest concern. God told Judah in Isaiah 7, 4, to take care, be calm, have no fear, don't be faint-hearted. But they had more fear of their enemies than they had fear of God. They were living in fear and dread. The, the word dread means trembling. They were trembling. The Greek translation of that was terasso, to be stirred up, to shake like a leaf in the wind. And God wants us to live in freedom from that kind of fear. If we're to be zealous for what is good, we can live in freedom. Freedom from unnecessary harm and suffering. Freedom from unwanted intimidation and distress. I don't have to be intimidated. I don't have to be troubled. I can be confident. I can be courageous because I know who my God is. And I regard the Lord Yahweh as holy. Why don't you flip back to, to 1 Peter chapter 3. And don't worry, we'll only get to point two today, all right? 1 Peter chapter 3. 
I want to show you the connection back to this text. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse, verse 14. Again, in the middle of the verse, it's a quotation from Isaiah. Remember that? And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Right? Quotation from Isaiah. But listen to what it says next in verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Back in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then when you look at 1 Peter, he says, who are you to regard as holy? It's sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The, the word sanctifies uh, the Greek word hagiazo, which is to treat as holy. In the Old Testament, it says revere God as holy. In 1 Peter, it says revere Christ as holy. What, what is it saying? Jesus Christ is God. That's what it's saying. Jesus Christ is God. Regard Jesus Christ in your hearts as holy. It's another passage that defends the deity of Jesus Christ. It's all over the scriptures. Jesus is God. It's all over the place. And if you've set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and you regard him as holy, that will be enough to drive out fear and trouble and intimidation. And what makes this so important for this context? This is, this is why this is so important. Because that's a necessary prerequisite to defending the faith. A necessary prerequisite to defending the faith. Because if you fear the people that you're speaking to more than you fear God, you will not stand up for God. If you fear the people that you're talking to more than you fear God, you will not stand up for God. Why do you think people squirm and fidget when they're asked a direct question? It's because they have more fear of the people they're talking to. Sometimes you see these talk shows where, you know, a, a pastor or a preacher is asked a direct question. You know, do, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, I know many people have different views about Jesus and, and I can only speak for myself. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that for me, he's the only way. I mean, he's the only way for me. That's what I'm trying to say. Why do you give an answer like that? Because you fear the person that you're talking to more than you do your God. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's really a difficult question to answer. It's not difficult at all. Jesus himself said, I'm the only way. Why, why do you have a problem saying what Jesus said, right? You know, people say, uh, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? You know, that's, that's really a charged question. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we're inviting and, and welcoming and loving. And, and everyone is welcome to our doors. And, and part of loving you is wanting the best for you. And I, I would just say that homosexuality is not God's best. It's, it's just not the best. Why do people give answers like that? Because they fear the people they're talking to more than they fear God. You give answers like that when you don't regard God as holy. When you don't set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. When you're fearing the intimidation of men. But Peter says, you can be free from that kind of fear. You don't, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear their intimidation. You don't have to be troubled. And the solution for that is found in the contrasting statement. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Don't fear. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Regard Christ as holy. Keep your eyes focused on him and not on the people who are in front of you. That's the solution. That's the solution for fear. And once that's established... Now I am prepared to defend the faith, which is exactly where it goes next. 
always being ready, right? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The solution for fear is regarding Christ as holy in your hearts and trusting in him, which is what we'll take a look at next week. There's so much here that's helpful and we don't want to miss any of it. So uh, uh, we'll be back next week to continue our study of 1 Peter chapter 3. Amen. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, God, and uh, we're just so grateful. So grateful for your word that uh, gives us uh, instructions for life. My Father, it gives us the, the way to live the good life. And, and the good life is not what people around us are talking about. The, the good life is a, a life that's, that's free from the, the fear of intimidation. It's a, a life that's free from unnecessary harm that could be brought to us. And it's also a, a freedom from ungodly shame and scandal. And uh, Father, we uh, look forward to, to all that the Word of God will have to teach us. And Father, your Word is so clear. Your Word is so relevant. My Father, your word is powerful, it's rich, it's authoritative, Lord, it's transformative. My Father, we thank you for the ways that it transforms our thinking and the way that we live. My Father, I pray that you would use your word in in our lives, Lord, even even today. My Father, I pray that we would meditate on these truths and that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.